Hi, and welcome to the Circle of Film podcast. I'm Ryan, and join me as we step into Jackie on today's statistics episode. We reap the wind and the sky when the sun is high. We sail the length of the seas on the ocean breeze. At night we name every star. We know where we are. We know who we are, who we are. There wasn't a review episode for Jackie. I don't really have too much to say. I think you can kind of get a general consensus from anywhere else you look regarding how good the film is and how good Natalie Portman is. I think she's fantastic in the film, and I think the film is overall pretty average. I saw it on the 22nd of December, uh, clocked at about 95 minutes, so... It's actually a lot shorter than I expected it to be, uh, which I does, which I think does service the film in a positive sense. It is a 2016 film, and this is my brief summary. The titular first lady fights through her own grief after President Kennedy is assassinated. Uh, so it, it just kind of follows Jackie Kennedy in the moments immediately after uh, John F. Kennedy's death regarding setting up the funeral and services, uh, removing herself and her possessions from the White House, and then an interview she has with uh, Billy Crudup's character, who is a reporter. I give it a 57 which puts it on par with Ouija, Origin of Evil, from this year. It's got an 88 on Rotten Tomatoes. So, a uh, little bit bit of a discrepancy. You know, Rotten Tomatoes is definitely much higher on this film than I am. Uh, the Rotten Tomatoes critics consensus says, Jackie, Jackie offers an alluring peek into a beloved American public figure's private world, and an enthralling starring performance from Natalie Portman in The Bargain. But I do find that the film is a little scattershot, and it's constantly flitting between various moments, uh, both before and after the assassination. I I struggled with it, narratively speaking, because there isn't much of a narrative. Uh, It's directed by Pablo Lorraine. This is the first Pablo Lorraine film I've seen. Uh, He makes his directorial debut on my spreadsheet at slot 1088th tied with a handful of other people this is the third film i've seen and logged with the with a writing credit for noah oppenheim the previous two are the maze runner and allegiant a couple of ya novels so this, this is a pretty significant shift for him uh, coming off of much more mainstream pop culture types of things. Uh, this ranks as his second best film behind The Maze Runner. And he is ranked 2,453rd. So not not doing too great. As far as the actors go, uh, the best actor that was a part of this film was John Hurt. This is the 25th John Hurt film I've seen. 
It lowers his average film rating to a 68.56. It is the fourth film of his that's been ranked in the 50s. And it lowers his score to a 107.56. And it drops him four spots, uh, which, given that he was recently at uh, 49th place, he is now outside of the top 50. And that is significant because I have a top 50 list of actors on Letterboxd. And so the next time that I edit it, presuming I don't see a good John Hurt film between now and then, he will have fallen out of that list. Next, we have Beth Grant. This is the 18th film of Beth Grant's that I've seen. Her 14th best overall lowers her average film rating to a 68.89. It is the third film of hers rated in the 50s. And it drops her score to a 98.89 and her rank down about 20 spots to 179. So still a very, very strong resume from Beth Grant. Uh, Natalie Portman. This is the 27th Natalie Portman film and her 21st overall. Uh, It lowers her average film rating to a 62.96. It is the second film of hers rated in the 50s. Drops her score to a 95.96. Very small drop for her. And she only falls... Technically, she really only falls below one subset of group people. But there's like 15 people that all have a 96. And so she's right beneath them. And that puts her at 289th overall. Then there's Peter Sarsgaard, who easily my least favorite part of the movie you know he can play a very convincing villain almost any day of the week and frequently is cast as such you know he just he has one of those faces that comes off very grimy and kind of suave but in a very malicious type of way and he's trying to play very i mean he's bobby kennedy he's trying to play this very normal i think and i don't think he pulls it off in this one you know i i found him to be another weak point of the movie this is the 20th peter sarsgaard film i've seen it lowers his film rating to a 64.65 it is the fifth uh, film of his rated in the 50s and his 13th best film overall it lowers his score to an 89.65 and drops his rank to 523rd. John Carroll Lynch. This is his 18th film and 13th best overall. It is his third film rated in the 50s that drops his average film rating to a 64.89. It drops his score to an 88.89 and drops his rank down to 568. Uh, He has a very small role in this, uh, almost... Very non-existent. He plays um, Johnson, the vice president. And we see him briefly in a, his first scene. And they kind of just gloss over him. And Beth Grant, who who plays Ladybird. And for a, for a significant amount of time, you know, he doesn't really come back till toward the end of the film. And I, I thought for a second, I wondered if like that was it. If we weren't going to even see him again. But we, we do. He... he he does have a presence in the film, just very, very small. Um, who's next? Uh, 
Greta Gerwig, who I really liked in this movie. This is the eighth film of hers I've seen. Her seventh best overall. Lowers her average film rating to a 69.38. It's her first film rated in the 50s. And drops her score to an 82.38. Drops her rank to 889. So a very strong cast for this film. We're still in the top 50%. Uh, with Billy Crudup, who's this is his 13th film. His 10th best overall. His third film rated in the 50s. Lowers his average film rating to a 61.69. Lowers his score to a 74.69. And puts his rank at 1,369th overall. Uh, And we finally drop below the top 50% to Max Casella, who I completely missed even being in this film when I watched it and didn't realize he was in it until I saw him in the credits. Uh, This is his 11th film, his 6th best, which lowers his average film rating to a 58.55. It is his only film rated in the 50s, and lowers his score to a 65.55, and puts his rank at 1,934th. You also have Richard E. Grant, This is his third film, rated in the 50s, his fourth best film overall, his ninth total films, and it lowers his average film rating to a 57.56, so barely even budged the needle. He ends up dropping just two spots to 2,146. And that is it for actors. As far as genre goes, um... I really only chalk this one up as a drama. It does pass the Bechdel test completely. Gerwig and Portman do exchange a couple conversations that aren't pertaining to a male character, and it is rated R. Uh, It clearly hasn't won any Oscars yet, but there are a lot of good prospects for it, particularly for Portman and Best Actress. And... I think there's a decent chance that it gets nominated for a couple of below-the-line categories, maybe cinematography, uh, maybe maybe costume as well. I, I definitely would put it as a short li- part of the shortlist on that. But I, I, outside of Portman, I don't think there's a chance it wins anything. It doesn't hit any of my best picture lists. It uh, doesn't make my top 100 or anything like that. So moving on, for the year of 2016, I've now seen 161 films from this year, and I've seen 1,066 films during the time period of this year. Films released in 2016, the average rating for them currently is 57, so this falls just ahead of the average. Uh, This is, as a drama, this is the sixth one of the 69 dramas I've seen this year, but is far below the all-time record, which is 2013, where I've seen 155 dramas from that year. <laughs> so high. Uh, as a three on the Bechdel test, it is part of the 45.34% of films from this year that pass it, which is the highest number 
of, of all the years. You know, this is, again, this statistic is mildly misleading because not every film that I've seen has a Bechtel test rating, but for this year, it is a very, very, is improvement. It's an improvement. Uh, as an R-rated film, this is the 58th film rated R from this year that I've seen, which edges out PG-13 by one now. And that's pretty much it. Uh, you know, there's not much else to talk about as far as statistics go. I really don't have too much more to say about the film as a, in general. But as this is a, as this is a statistics episode, I will reference a something that has a couple of things. Firstly, I finalized the rating for La La Land. It came in at a 79. Two, in turn, I lowered the rating of Rogue One, which was previously a 79. And it's not as if La La Land took its place. But upon further reflection, listening to a lot of other people talk about the film, and just kind of understanding my response my my feelings toward it i have dropped rogue one from a 79 to a 70 which now puts it on par with morris from america and puts la la land on par with captain america civil war and sausage party I mentioned that I was going to talk about La La Land a little more. I did see it a second time on Sunday. And while I, I know I commented that I would... Uh, I, I, I thought that watching it a second time would lower the score for me. And it didn't. What it, what it did was kind of solidify my, my feelings on the movie. And, you know, it's easy, easily enough I can say that I like all the pieces. I just don't like the whole. You know, I like the songs. I like the scenes and the characters. I like the moments. I like the beats. I like the acting. I, I like the sets and the film work and the dancing and the choreography and the cinematography. I think they're all great. But I think the whole has a lot of problems. And the most noteworthy one is the overall message of the film. You open up with this big number that kind of embodies the feeling that a lot of people have that leave their world behind and go out west, LA. They're looking for success. They've sacrificed to get there. And then you meet these two characters, Sebastian and Mia, who have sacrificed to get where they are. They're still struggling. Mia's not a famous actress. Sebastian is not, does not own a jazz club. But they both want to. You know, they want their goals to be achieved. They've given up a lot to get there. And they begin this relationship. And you can see that some of their goals are still not being achieved. And Sebastian, you know, is actually moving in the wrong direction. Whereas, I wouldn't say Mia's necessarily moving in the wrong direction, but she she tries a different tact that doesn't really go well for her. But I don't think that that's inherently 
a problem with what she's doing. She just doesn't have, uh, I don't know, her, her one-woman show seems like fine, a fine thing to pursue in terms of pursuing her dream. I don't think she's moving in the wrong direction. I think she's moving in the right direction, which is strange because we get to this point in the movie where the characters don't know what they're doing. They feel like they're swimming in place. And I don't think that that's true for Mia. I do think that's true for Sebastian, though. And then... Uh, spoilers, uh, spoilers, 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 spoilers. At the end of the movie, they have that entire flashback alternate timeline type of thing. And I, you get this, you know, if, if the movie, the movie opens up on you know, we're all coming out to sacrifice our lives to be in LA and to be successful. The end of the movie says that it seems to be implying that both Sebastian and Mia would be happier if they were together, which I believe, I think they would be. But if they're together, then that means Sebastian doesn't own his club. And, but it doesn't mean that Mia isn't an actress, like, which is crazy. I don't, it seems to be implying that Mia could be happy if Sebastian was not able to have his dreams come true. So I, I, the, the message just seems so muddled and I, I really have to take issue with it. And if someone can explain it better, uh, you know, I've, I've listened to many people talk about the film. I'm, for the people who have viewed the ending in a different light and a lot of people do i've heard a lot of people say how much they love the ending and i think the ending looks great and the idea of it is is fascinating but i think the message behind it is is very puzzling and i don't think it makes much sense so that's that's kind of where i'm at with la la land i won't be completely upset if it wins best picture but I will still be mildly disappointed it, it feels like we keep I don't know we, we just keep giving best picture to these movies that have inherent flaws in them you know Spotlight I think is a very flawed movie Argo is flawed the artist is flawed uh, Crash was flawed. Chicago, a beautiful mind. You know, I just the English patient, very flawed. Braveheart, Forrest Gump, Driving Miss Daisy, Out of Africa, Chariots of Fire, Terms of Endearment. I think there are so many films that have got one best picture, and not all of them for sure, definitely not all of them, but many, where I think that the Academy completely misses the mark. More so than I think most people even, you know, a lot of people will point to a couple of films in the past as completely undeserving. And I would point to the vast majority 
as undeserving and a significant chunk of those to be very undeserving. You know, my, my least favorite currently is Tom Jones, which won in 63. You know, I don't, I think that's just an awful film, but you know, what do I know? What do I know? Well, I know that that is the end of this podcast episode. I thank you for listening. Uh, this is a very brief one. This is a very short episode. And if you want to listen to any of the other episodes, go to circleoffilm.com or you can email me at circleoffilm at gmail.com. And as always, have a week. So long, Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute.